Esther chapter number 9, verse number 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed, help me Lord, Parshandatha and Dauphon and Aspatha and Paratha and Adalia and Aradatha and Billy and Joe and Todd and Greg. <laughs> I tried. I so tried. I wanted to do that. I even practice and, you know, it is what it is. They, these names, they are the ten sons of Haman the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But the Jews laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. Now, this is gory, it's violent, it's not altogether pleasant, and if you have a good memory, I told you that this message was about celebration. Well, the celebration is going to be detailed at the end of the message as we get towards the end, but I want us to take a quick moment and remember what, what is the context for this last message in the Esther series. It all began when... Esther the orphan became Esther the queen. Through the providence of God, the unseen, invisible hand of God, God took a little orphan girl, a Jewess, who had lost her parents, was being raised by her older cousin Mordecai, and God promoted her to become the queen of Persia, the most powerful woman in the entire Persian empire. But there was a problem that her husband, the king, had a chief of staff named Haman. And Haman hated the Jews. Specifically, he hated Esther's cousin, Mordecai. And so Haman decreed out through the land that on a certain day, the day that has come to pass in this passage we just read, that anybody in the Persian Empire had the legal right to attack and destroy, kill any Jew in the entire Persian Empire. It was a, an edict for Holocaust to come against the, the descendants of Abraham that were living all throughout the provinces in the Persian Empire. And so that had come to pass, and then through a, a series of, of different sovereign events, God exposed Haman to be an enemy. Esther let her husband the king know that she herself was a Jew, revealed the plot of Haman to exterminate all the people, and then Haman's whole plan imploded underneath him, and he ended up being executed for attempting to violate the queen. That was the official thing that got him executed. But here was the problem. The law had already been passed that on this date, the 13th day of the month Adar, on the Hebrew calendar, that all of the Jews could be attacked and that law could not be reversed. 
And so Mordecai and Esther had come together, worked with the king, and put out a second law. And the second law said, okay, we can't stop the Jews from being attacked, but we can give them full permission to fight to the death to defend themselves. And so on this particular date in chapter number nine, you have the one law that says anybody in the kingdom can attack the Jews. You have the second law that says, but the Jews have the right to defend their lives, defend their families, defend their property. And so what you've got is this one day on the calendar where the, the kingdom of darkness, the forces, the anti-Semitic forces of hell are going to come against God's chosen people, the Jews. And, and if we didn't have the book of Esther and we were living at that time, nobody knew what was going to happen. And so that's the intensity, that's the drama surrounding it. And so as we move into this passage, and for those of you that know the story, um, you're going to find out that um, the people of God do exactly what they've been permitted to do, and God gives them a tremendous victory. And so let's look at this passage together and work our way down to the end of it, because my goal is this. My goal is not to give you a history lesson on, on the... The, the ways of God in ancient Israel. My goal is to awaken us to the reality of the great victory that we have against the forces of darkness through the sacrifice and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to leave us with a question because we're going to find out at the end of this that the Hebrew people from that day unto this day that you're living in continue to celebrate every year the victory that God gave way back then. And my question to those of us that are Christians in the 21st century in the West is this. Where is our celebration? What has happened to our hearts to where we have become a people, a group of believers in the West, the church in the West, that somehow believe the greatest thing we can offer God is our staid and reverent stillness and silence with polite nods at doctrine. And that is the extent in many places of the celebration that people enjoy as Christians. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to tell you every now and then God wants you to throw a party in his honor. And the party's got to begin right here in our chest cavity in that thing we call the heart. So let's go back into the verses tonight. I'm going to show you a little bit of what God is doing here. And first of all, I want to give you this principle. All of these three things I'm going to share with you are kingdom principles. Here's the first one. Victory is decreed, but a fight is required. How many of you believe that you have victory in God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Say amen if you believe that. How many of you have come to that place to know that that victory is decreed and it is available, but there are seasons where you have to fight to experience it? Because you are not only a person who's been granted victory and promise and covenant and blessing, but you're a person because of that that has a bullseye on his or her chest because the enemy hates the fact that God is blessing you. And so there is a fight that is required, and we see that here among the Jews. First of all, let me give you three things that God does when he is giving victory to people. First of all is this thing I call reversal. And this is what God delights in. God delights in reversals. We see it here. It says in the 12th month, the month of Adar, on the 13th day of that same month, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day where the enemies of Jews hoped, of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, watch this, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those that hated them. Okay, so the writer of the book of Esther gives you the headline. He tells you at the beginning what he's about to tell you in detail, but he gives you the headline. He says, the battle took place and the Hebrews won. They defeated their enemies. They defeated and foiled the plot and the plan of Haman that came through the king's edict, and they destroyed those. And when we read that, this is one of the things that we have got to recapture as believers in the 21st century, especially when you're getting pounded day in and day out with the, the doomsday scenarios. It's in your social media feeds. It's on every news broadcast. It's on every news website. We're getting bombarded. I've got people in my, my own sphere of influence that are just, the sky is falling. It's all coming to an end. And most of it's rooted in what's going on right here in this tiny little speck called the United States of America. And they're looking to Washington, D.C. That's a speck of the speck. And they're saying, oh, no, it's chaos there. Therefore, everything's falling apart. Let me just tell you something. We are believers. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We have experienced the greatest victory of any people group ever in the history of mankind. And we cannot give in to the temptation to be biting our nails, knocking our knees, and falling apart because we've got political chaos in our country. 
Sometimes you've got to fight from it, and the beauty of it is this. It can be falling apart all around us, but God delights in reversals. What am I talking about? Listen, it was falling apart for the Hebrew people for nine months. They've been living in for nine months with this death decree hanging over their heads, and in one day, God takes that which was against them, and he turns it around, and instead of being the tail, they become the head of the situation. Why? What happened? The Lord made a way. I, I, I think probably, you know, even with a smaller number of people gathered for a midweek service, there's probably some people in the room right now where all of the chips are down, all of the cards are against you, your back's against the wall, your situation looks impossible. You don't see how, when, or why at this point the Lord would even think about reversing your situation. And maybe you're looking at the calendar. Maybe you're looking at the clock. Maybe you're saying there's just not enough time. I want you to know that God allowed his people, the Hebrews, to wait nine months, but then completely reverse their situation in a matter of about 36 hours. Um, Because he's beyond time, he doesn't need a lot of time. It doesn't take the Lord months and months and months to accomplish his will. He can do it on a a turn of a dime, and that's what he did, and God delights in that. Listen, just from my own life, I remember prior to coming to Jesus Christ, I was so dominated by my flesh. I was so dominated by addictions and the powers of, of sin and all of this stuff. I had tried everything, even as a lost man, to just get free from these things that so dominated my life, and I met with failure after failure failure after failure but on that day in August of 1994 when I received Jesus Christ in an instant God did in an instant of time not because I made up my mind but just in a moment of full surrender to him he did in an instant of time what I could not nor could anybody else accomplish on my behalf for 10 years of trying you see that's just what he does he loves to take the impossible and flip it and turn it into the actual, and that's what he did for the Hebrews. But there's more to it than that. One of the ways that God worked this reversal is he gave his people what is probably an overused term, but I think it's a biblical reality. He gave them favor. What am I talking about? Well, listen, favor is what God can always do. Look at verses 2 and 3. It said that the Jews gathered themselves. That means they formatted, they got together, they planned, they strategized, they came together in a um, a strategy of defending themselves, they gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of uh, King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. Now watch this in verse 3. All of the officials, those are government leaders of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the royal agents, they also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. Now, I want you to think about this because the Jews were people that were basically um, exiles in the Persian Empire. They were scattered. They had lost their own city. They had lost their own national identity. They were scattered throughout all of the Persian Empire. They were uh, a distinct people because of their race and their religion, but they were scattered everywhere. They were not a, a solidified, galvanized people, and so they were pilgrims in a land that really didn't belong to them anymore. And yet they were, they were people that God gave favor to in the hour of their need. Mordecai, who was Mordecai? He was previously, just a year before, he was nothing more than a, a, an exiled Jew living in the Persian Empire. And now he is literally the new chief of staff to the king. What happened? Favor. God put favor on him. And then with all of the Jewish people whose lives are now being threatened, what did the Lord do? The Lord gave them favor with all of the governors of the provinces. So all throughout the land, these people that hate the Jews have this capacity, this legal capacity, not only to continue to oppress them, but to kill them and to take their property. We got to think through this. It would be like in our land if out of Washington, D.C., there came a decree that all throughout the United States of America, if you live anywhere near a short Irish guy, then you have the ability to destroy him and his family and seize their property. Now, just think about this. Don't you think that there would be opportunistic people that would love the chance, free of any kind of criminality, to come and kill and steal and destroy? 
They absolutely would. Mercenary people, opportunistic people, people that want something for nothing. And that's what went on throughout the whole land. An entire people group were subjugated to a death decree. And the law of the land was, hey, if you want their stuff, all you got to do is kill them. And so there were people that wanted to kill the Jews, one, because they hated them, but two, because they could take all of their property and profit. So what did God do? God gave the entire people group favor throughout all of the provinces. And we're not told any of the details, but it does say that they had favor with the governors, they had favor with the local leaders, they had favor with those that made the laws. And in some way, the fear of the Jews began to intimidate the very people that were going to attack them. By the way, it is also pointed out there that some of it was because of the fear of Mordecai. Remember this, uh, Mordecai by this time would have been a well-known name throughout the entire empire. Why? Because the guy that wanted Mordecai dead ended up getting killed himself. Mordecai ended up owning all of Haman's property, getting his household, getting his property, and getting the king's ring taken off of Haman's finger, put on Mordecai's finger, and now Mordecai has the second highest position in all of the land. So in other words, nobody wanted to mess with Mordecai because it was very clear that Mordecai's God took care of business on his behalf. Friends, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to ever be cocky about um, who I am in Jesus. I don't think cockiness is a gift of the Spirit. But at the same time, I don't want to walk around pretending that we don't have decrees from heaven over our lives, because we do. We have the reasonable, biblical, covenantal right to expect God to A, come to our defense, B, to provide for us, C, to promote us when we're seeking to be promoted for his glory. We ought to turn the corner on this stuff instead of walking around in some kind of morphed version of humility that says, no, basically I'm just a doormat in the kingdom. I'm a worm. I'm just a worm. I've heard that stuff my whole Christian life, and I've never believed anybody that said it that they actually believed it themselves. I think we've got to come to the place where we're never cocky, we're never arrogant, we're never presumptuous, but we are expecting God to be good to us because after all, we're his children. And the children of Israel here were getting blessed in a time where they couldn't go without the blessing. If God didn't give them favor and take care of them, then they were going to be destroyed. Well, go a little further. Look at this elevation, and this is pictured just in Mordecai here. And this is what God offers. I'm going to be, I'm going to be very uh, intentional here in how I say what I'm about to say. Look at Mordecai's elevation. Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all of the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Now, for those of you that have been here for this series, what did Mordecai really do to become great? You know what he did? He obeyed. He trusted. He sought God with all of his heart. He humbled himself and he waited on the Lord. Mordecai was not spectacular. Mordecai would not have fit the bill of a, a kingdom superstar. All Mordecai did was to seek the Lord discern what the Lord was doing, and then fully commit himself to what God was doing as he waited on the Lord's timing. Remember, Mordecai fasted. He wore sackcloth and ashes, so he knew when danger was coming that he needed to humble himself. And so Mordecai represents this believer who is willing to not panic in difficult circumstances, but to respond to those difficult circumstances with a, a devout focus on the king sitting upon his throne. Not the human king, not Ahasuerus, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so Mordecai pictures to us the simplicity of what it means to pursue the Lord and wait on the Lord and as always to obey the Lord. Just very quickly here, uh, faith, genuine faith, will always have obedience attached to it it's not faith if it doesn't get paired with obedience disobedience is the antithesis of faith but faith with obedience is the gateway to stepping into the place from which God will elevate you 
I'm going to go ahead and, and just speak prophetically here. And this isn't a, a specific prophetic word. I think it's a very safe one. But some of you are going to be offered elevation in the kingdom in the coming year. You're going to be offered that. God is going to look and he is going to uh, help you to recognize how he shepherded you thus far. You have a history of waiting on him, a history of depending on him, a history of not fighting for your own rights, your own name, your own fame, your own territory, but you have known when to yield, you have known when to fight, and you have come to that place where you're just all about his glory, and God is going to honor that. He's going to bless you for that. You have waited, you are like, much like the Jews were, they waited for nine months and God did nothing. But God was purifying them and he was working and he was preparing them. And now comes the time, pictured here in Mordecai, of the Jews' elevation. Now, here's my thing. This is what I want to kind of put in there. Will you and I remain in that same humble, obedient, seeking posture after the elevation? That is the key. Because there are thousands upon thousands of believers who've experienced that initial season of elevation from God and they never get another one because they don't respond right to the first one. People get elevated and then they start believing that they, they earned it, they deserved it, they made it happen and they start owning the blessings of, of, of being elevated and they forget God. But for Mordecai, he has a testimony of just continuing to follow the Lord to the point of now being elevated. And his, the Bible says that, Mordecai wasn't seeking it, but his fame spread throughout the 127 provinces all throughout the Persian Empire. And the fear of Mordecai motivated people to think twice about attacking Mordecai's people, the Jews. Verse number five. I think this is good. This is this... Um, this is something that's important to me personally. It's important to this body of believers here when we're talking about justice. Justice is what God releases. And how many of us wish he'd just go ahead and release it, right? Because we live in a land that is filled with too many injustices to count. Uh, whole, whole components of the American fabric have the threads, the rotten threads of injustice woven all through them. It's all throughout the world. You could take two minutes and probably come up with a list of 25 to 30 serious injustices that have been attached to our history as a nation. But look at what happens in verse 5. The Bible gives it very clear. Remember what we're talking about. We're talking about, we're talking about breakthrough and victory coming, but there has to be a fight. Here's the fight. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Now, for those of you that have bought into the ridiculous lie that God is a, uh, a mealy-mouthed pacifist and he never, ever wants anybody to fight, you need to rip out large chunks of your Bible because you can't substantiate that view of God from the Scripture. I appreciate that we, we all want peace and we understand Jesus said, turn the other cheek, but that was last week's message and I did a, a pretty intense job of just trying to say, no, sometimes you have to fight. Sometimes that literally the only way to victory is that your enemy has to lose. And sometimes God wants your enemy to lose demonstrably, resoundingly, openly, making a spectacle of the enemy. And that is what the Hebrews had to do. So here comes the enemy and the enemy wanted to kill the Jews. It's amazing that the anti-Semite heart, that diabolical, demonic anti-Semitism was so strong in the Persian Empire that even though they understood that the Jews could fight back against them, there were still people that said, I'm going to kill me some of them Jews. And so they came against them and they were soundly defeated. The Bible says the Jews struck all their enemies with a sword. Let me be clear. The Jewish people in defending their families and their property killed those Persians that came up against them to destroy them to the extent that the scripture says here in verse number five that the Jews actually had their way with them that it wasn't much of a battle it says they did as they pleased to those who hated them now my friends I, I I understand there's a little bit of tension here because Jesus did tell us to love our enemies he did tell us to pray for our enemies he told us to bless those that that persecute us and how do, we, how do we reconcile that with what I'm talking about here? I want to tell you something. 
when your life is under threat, when physical violence is coming up against you, when injustice is being heaped upon you, maybe not every time, but I'm going to tell you in the sense of physically defending yourself, you should. You should fight to protect yourself. If you're the head of your household and somebody comes against those that you are responsible for, if you don't defend them because you're a Christian, then you've misunderstood a component of Christianity. That we have to defend at times. We have to fight. And there are times where we have to, even in the, in the um, discomfort of giving pushback against that which is coming against us, there are times where God wants to defeat your enemy for you. But there are also times when those moments find us that we're saying, well, God will just take care of it. Be very careful. Sometimes God says, I'm going to take care of it, but not independently of you fighting for it. See, friends, I, I believe in a sovereign God, probably to the extent that I would make some of you uncomfortable. I've been accused more than once of being a hyper-Calvinist. And I, I can tell you, if you know any hyper-Calvinists, they'll say, Jeff Lyle is not a hyper-Calvinist. But I believe so strongly in the sovereignty of God, but a misrepresentation of God's sovereignty is, well, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to become passive, and whatever happens, happens. Do you know how many people miss breakthrough and miss opportunity and miss victory because they're saying, let God do it all? And sometimes God's saying, no, you do it. You actually have to fight for it. You have to exert effort. You have to be intentional. You have to be proactive. And, and friends, listen, it does. It takes discernment to know when to yield and when to fight. And that's why, just a very practical reason why we need to cultivate such intimacy with the Lord so that we can hear his voice in the moment. Sometimes you don't know whether to lace on the gloves and start swinging or to take them off and trust the Lord. And the only way we're going to know that is that we have previously established an intimacy with the Lord and he'll guide you with the pupil of his eye. He'll show you exactly what you need to do. But listen... I'm, I'm going to tell you, when, when I read verse number five, my heart leaps because it's a kind of an, a nondescript verse, but it's actually the climax of the story. The, the Holocaust was set up to destroy the Jews, and verse number five of chapter number nine says the Jews won. They fought back, and they were allowed to defend themselves, and in their fighting back, God gave them the victory. I, I want to encourage you before I move on here. Um, I promise you something. That if, if, we, if we live through 2019, through 2020, and so on and so on, as you continue to live, the fight against you as a Christian is not going to become milder. It is going to intensify. Your beliefs as a Christian are going to be less and less acceptable to a culture that is moving at a rapid pace away from any semblance of honoring God. They're not even wanting to honor God with the words anymore. We used to honor him in word and deed as a nation. And then it kind of went to word where our hearts weren't exactly jiving with what we said, but we still said it. Now we're living in a culture that doesn't want his name mentioned doesn't want Jesus mentioned. And, and, and literally that there is penalties against it that are starting to pop up in our society. So it's not going to be easier to be a Christian. Your kids and your grandkids are not going to have it as easily as you did and as I did. And they're going to have to know when to fight. And friends, the only way they'll know when to fight is if they have been trained to have ears that hear. Casual Christianity will not survive what is coming. It won't. Cultural Christianity will not make it. That'll be the first layer that is burned away when persecution hits. It is the comfortable, casual, church-attending Sunday Christian who ho-hums his or her way through the Christian, Christian dumb, and when persecution from the culture hits, that's going to be the first layer that's burned off they won't fight they won't think it's worth fighting for but for you and I and our children our grandchildren those that come up behind us friends we have got to develop the intimacy so that we hear the Lord so that when he says fight we not only know who to fight but we know how to fight the Jews understood how to do that so they have won the battle there's a little bit more to it so let's go down into verses 11 through 16 
there's a message that is sent here. And it's pictured in all that is taking place. But there's also some restraint by the Hebrews that is enacted here. So this might serve as a little bit of a counterbalance to all that passion about fighting I just poured out. So let's make sure we're clear on this. First of all, here's the first part of the message that was sent in the Persian Empire so many centuries ago. Do not attack God's chosen people. And I want to be clear here. Not only am I applying this to Christians, but I'm being very specific. Don't mess with Israel. Do not mess with the descendants of Abraham. That's not just an ancient lesson. It is current wisdom. You don't want to mess with Israel. Look in verse 11 and 12. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, the capital area, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's providences? provinces? And then he looks at Esther and he goes, now, what's your wish? It's almost like the king's heart's getting excited about his, his wife's people overcoming. He says, it'll be granted to you. What is your further request? It will be fulfilled. So very quickly here, you're going to find out in a moment that uh, 75,000 people who attacked the Jews in this one day all throughout the uh, provinces of Israel, 75,000 people felt like they should attack the Jews and 75,000 people died. Listen, do you, by the way, do you know who the ancient Persians, do you know who, who that people group is today? Iranians. Now, I'm not here to be, uh, this is not a racial thing. This is, a, this is an issue of a, a, a war that has been going on for millennia. And God has a covenant with the descendants of Abraham. And even back in the times of Ahasuerus, the people in that land that is now Iran were attacking the Jews. And in our very present day, the most fierce opposition against Israel still proceeds from Iran. They still want to wipe them off the map. They still want to destroy them. And, and not just Iran, but that whole area, all of the surrounding area have one objective, to destroy the Jews. When you come to the back of the book, at the book of Revelation, you still see anti-Semitism being fueled in a demonic elevated sense through the antichrist and the false prophet and the beast coming up against israel and specifically against the king of israel the lord jesus christ at the end of the age see my friends this is not some side issue and i just want to let you know as history plays this out as we move towards the end of the age it's going to be the same result anybody that messes with israel is going to lose and here's the reason why because God has declared over them a covenant of victory now there's going to have to be massive heart change and I don't believe don't send me emails please I don't believe that everything that is done in national political Israel today has God's uh endorsement on it I get it I understand that there's some tension but what I'm telling you is that there's a bloodline that God has said he will honor to the end of the age and so uh that's the first part of the message. Don't attack God's chosen people. I don't mind telling you, and you can if you want to email me on this one, feel free, send it to Dustin at mynewbridge.church. <laughs> um, when we think about, you know, because now it's a political issue, I can tell you my views on the international scene as pertains to Israel are not political, they're biblical. I develop my views concerning Israel and the surrounding nations and their actual land. I develop that based on what Scripture says. Not because I vote a certain way, and it doesn't mean that I don't have compassion on some of the Arab people that are immensely struggling. I don't think we have to either be for Israel and against it. I think we ought to, that there's a help that can be offered to the Arab people, but I'm going to tell you something. It's already been decided that the, the issue of the land has already been decided. Man, I'm getting so off track here, but I just get encouraged because I'm thinking, man, they're fighting over this tiny sliver that, that they're saying doesn't belong to Israel now. Do you know how much more of that land God's actually decreed to Israel? 
It's not just where they are now. There's a bunch of it that's coming to them. And so when we're thinking about, well, man, Israel's this or Israel's that, just be really careful. Remember what your grandmama or your mama told you? If you can't say something good, don't say nothing at all. Let that apply to Israel. If you, don't, if you can't say something good about them, just, just be quiet and you'll be better off. All right, verses 13 and 14. Move it from the macro to the micro. Don't oppose God's appointed servant. Listen, Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman, all those names that I butchered, the ten sons of Haman, let them be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done, and a decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. Very quickly here. So the king had said, Esther, your people are winning. They've destroyed 500 of their attackers right here in the capital area. Um, Is there anything else that you want to ask of me, your husband, the king? And she says, I think we need another day to defend ourselves. So let the decree go throughout all of the empire that the Jews can defend themselves right here, especially in Susa, for one more day. And by the way, king, I know we've already killed Haman's ten sons, but let them be openly impaled. I know it's gross, but literally that was a practice because Haman was uh, the proud papa of ten sons, and in those days, in that culture, sons would often rise up to fight against the ones who destroyed their father. And so to put that out of the realm of possibility, those ten sons were targeted, they were killed, and then they were publicly impaled to send a message to anybody, don't mess with Mordecai and the Jews. All of this happened, by the way, before you start feeling sorry for Haman and his ten sons and Mrs. Haman, who is now a widow and an orphan, it is terrible for her, but let's just remember something. Haman did all this. Not only did Haman reap what he sowed, here's a word to the wise, Haman's family reaped what Haman sowed. I don't need to unpack that, right? And so, ultimately, because Haman messed with a servant of the Lord, Mordecai, who had humbled himself, who had fasted, prayed, sought God, trusted in God. Remember, it was, it was Mordecai that said to Esther, look, I think you've come into the kingdom for a time such as this, but if, if you don't want to rise to the occasion, rest assured, God's going to bring deliverance from somewhere. So Mordecai was full of faith, and God honored and blessed and elevated Mordecai. Haman fought who God elevated. Haman paid the price, and so did his family. Um, I I, I know a lot of preachers and pastors that would hijack this phrase, and they'd strut around the stage and say, don't mess with me, I'm God's appointed servant. Um, That's not what's being taught here. I think what we all need to be wise about is when, when God determines to elevate a person, when God determines to use a person and bless a person and advance the kingdom through a person, the last thing we want to do is get in the way. What we want to do is try to get in on that train, not get in front of that train. And unfortunately for Haman, he got in front of it, and we all know what happened to him. Here's the third part of this, this message, and this is where the Jewish people... Um, they did something that I think is kind of, kind of noteworthy. Um, don't profane God's advancement. Look in verse 15. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa. Watch this. It says it twice. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces are also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed, here you go, 75 thousand of those who hated them but they laid no hands on the plunder this is very interesting to me when the original law went out that permitted people to kill the jews part of that law said and by the way you can take all their property when the hebrews were given the ability to fight back and defend themselves we don't read that it was part of the law But for some reason, they all restrained themselves from becoming opportunistic. They did not profane with selfishness the victory that God had given them through holiness. So in other words, 
they weren't opportunistic. They didn't use the promise and the, the blessing of God for a carnal, selfish, promotional purpose. I, I find that noteworthy. You can think of a, another Jewish person that failed to do this. Do you remember Achan? Do you remember when Achan and the Jews came up against Jericho and they were strictly forbidden from plundering and taking any of the spoils of the war, which was a common practice. You go in, you destroy a village, you take their land, you take their stuff, you profit. It was common, but God said, don't touch anything in Jericho. And Achan couldn't help himself, and he stole some stuff, and he got exposed, and he got killed. And I don't know that that was going on in their minds at all, but this is what I do believe. I, I, I believe that the message that they sent in refusing to take any of the stuff that belonged to the people that were trying to kill them, I think they may have been communicating this, whether intentionally or unintentionally. We defended ourselves as our God-given right and in accordance with the law of the land, but our God is our sufficiency, and you don't have anything that we need, that we're not lacking anything. The same God that defended us, that protected us, that speaks his covenant over us will provide for us and we do not have to compromise our holiness in order to get something that we think might profit us or prosper us. That's what I was talking about earlier when I said a lot of people never get a chance for a second layer of elevation because they take that first elevation from God and they consumerize it. They look for every advantage for themselves. They think, I finally made it. This is my moment. It may never come again. How can I take this promotion in the kingdom, this blessing that God has sent, this elevation, how can I make it benefit me? And immediately when we do that, friends, we cut ourselves off from the prospect of another elevation. Why? Because what, what God has revealed to us in those moments is that, yeah, we actually wanted to get prospered for less than noble motivations. And so I take a, I take a caution in my heart because I want God to elevate me. I want God to bless me. I don't want it because I have some kind of thread in me that wants to be great in the eyes of people. Maybe in my 20s that might have been pulsing in my veins, but God has a way of kind of pulverizing that out of a person. And he has, he has worked double time to pulverize that kind of stuff out of me. But I'm going to tell you something. I want to be elevated because as much as my life and your life are reflections of the worth and the majesty and the goodness and the glory of Jesus Christ and his gospel, of course we want that to be put on a platform that more people can be benefited, more people can be exposed to who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives. We should want to be elevated. But when we're elevated, friends, leave it to be about him. Enjoy it. Thank him for it. Never presume upon it. But don't get mercenary with it. Don't objectify the blessings of God and make them about, oh, I wasn't supposed to do that, sorry. Make them about you. Just recognize the one who elevated you once will be glad to elevate you again if you prove that he can trust you with it. And then finally, here comes the celebration. Verses 16 through 22. Do you know what they did? They established a holiday to release their joy. I, I love this. Let me just read these verses. So they win, they kill the killers, they defend themselves, the day comes to an end, and nobody messes with them from that point forward. But look at what they do. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. So they were intentional about celebrating. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th because they had an extra day to fight in Susa and making that day a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who lived in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness for gladness and feasting, as a holiday and a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Verse 20, Mordecai recorded these things, sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obligating them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow 
into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. All right, a moment of testing. What is the name of this feast that's being described here? Purim. It is the Feast of Purim. It is celebrated by Jews from that day to this very day. And let me tell you a little bit about it, because I love this. And remember why they're celebrating. They're commemorating the mind-blowing victory, the reversal, the underdog being made the top dog, the hand of the sovereign God of the Hebrew people coming to their rescue in, a, in an hour and a day of attack and threatening and doom and gloom and, and frightening stuff going on. God comes, rescues them. All of those that presumed to destroy the Jews found themselves to destroy. And it says originally what happened is they just celebrated. They, I mean, I love that about the Jewish people. That the, their, their expression of gratitude was not to call a solemn assembly and be quiet and, and just reverent and stayed, but they, they literally, I don't want to be irreverent in how I describe it, but they threw a party and everybody was rejoicing. And it was intentional, it was on purpose, and it lasted. Um, it, is, it is the church in the West that because of our, you know, our puritanical borderline prudish um, representation of the kingdom we as a whole now some of y'all are just kind of y'all are fringe anyway y'all know how to celebrate Jesus and you're like I'm ready to get my worship on amen but but for the most part in the west people people believe the highest form of expressing gratitude and and worship is to do it quietly and and still and and man you just listen you don't get that from the history of God's people in the bible some of you won't like this but that's okay they they got their food together they got their people together they got their wine together they got their music and they said this is an awesome day in our history let's party and they did it to the extent that Mordecai who has proven himself spiritual, committed, disciplined. He knows how to mourn. He knows how to fast. He knows how to be somber. But Mordecai looks at it and goes, I like this. As a matter of fact, King, if I can borrow your pen, I'm going to write a law to all of the Jewish people that every year on these dates that we keep doing this. And so come around next March, somewhere next March, in Jewish communities, both in Israel and all throughout the world, there will be Hebrew people that will get together and celebrate this you know what they do they read the book of esther they read the entire book they get together either in the synagogue or they get together in their homes they they read the book of esther and every time the name haman is mentioned they stomp their feet and they rattle their noisemakers and they heap dishonor onto the name of haman to this very day he messed up when he messed with mordecai he totally blew to this very i mean listen this isn't funny but mordecai's been in hell since there you may not like that, but that is exactly where he went. He went straight to hell. And we, the, the Jewish people are still heaping scorn on him for what he attempted to do to their people. Little kids dress up on the, on the day where they celebrate Purim. And they, they, they dress up in costumes, and some of the adults do. And they feast, and they enjoy a time of celebration. And they, they heap scorn upon Haman, their enemy. Why? Because they're commemorating what great deliverance and victory that God gave them. By the way, they also provide food for the poor and they give gifts to each other. It's a time of not only celebration upward, but generosity from side to side, horizontally. And so it, it encompasses both the vertical and the horizontal. And they're celebrating what God has done. Now friends, why am I even, even introducing this thought? Well, because I'm, I'm, not as, I'm not as young as I was when I started this journey with Jesus. And I started, Billy and I were talking the other day. We're both 48 years old. And we're realizing, whoa, we got about 25 years, maybe, if y'all are generous and let us hang out that long. We got about 25 years of being primary leaders in the kingdom. And I think we've missed a lot of opportunities to rejoice and celebrate. I think because of intensity and drivenness and vision 
and mission and all of those things are going to become more important as we move on. But we've got to remember how essential it is to be intentional about stopping everything and just celebrating the goodness of God. Just recognizing how good he's been. I mean, good night. Did he, did he come tracking you down when you were a lost sinner? You may have been six years old, but he came tracking you down with the gospel. He set his mark on you, his love on you. He wanted to be with you forever and ever. He loved you so much that it would, it would blow your mind this very day if you or I were able to conceive of how much he loves us. But he put his mark on us. He chose us. He brought the gospel to us. He brought us to repentance. The Bible talks about God granting repentance. We can't even take credit for all of that stuff. And then he saved us, gloriously saved us, put his Holy Spirit within us. So many of us were miraculously delivered from the sin that once owned us. And then he gave us hope and he gave us purpose and he, he gave us purity and he took away our scarred and checkered histories. And the worst things we've ever done, he says, I don't remember those anymore. I actually choose to forget those things. What are you talking about? Why are you confessing stuff that I've intentionally forgotten? I mean, it's a comprehensive forgiveness and salvation. And he's blessed us even more than just the spiritual stuff. I mean, good night. He's prospered some of you in ways that is just stunning. And, and listen, here's what's awesome. The best is yet to come. We don't have a clue. All of this is a foretaste of glory divine. That he's got, he's like, oh, y'all have not seen anything yet. And so there are going to be moments where some of us just can't be quiet. We can't sit still. It, it's going to embarrass you to watch us lose it for the glory of the Lord. We're going to shout. We're going to dance. We might flop. We might run. We, I don't know what we might do. But there are times where the physical limitations we have, we, we're just going to max those out. We're going to do whatever we can do to convey that we're really happy in Jesus. And friends, listen, that needs to be, we don't need to ever fake it or force it, but man, we should have reason to expect it. And so as I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet, as we close out this amazing story of a little orphan girl who had lost everything, was raised by a nondescript older cousin who just did what he could, his, took his little cousin in and raised her as his own daughter and God looked on the, the millions, multiple hundreds of millions of people on the planet at that time and he says I'm going to put my favor on these two, they're precious to me and I know it's been hard on you and I know you've lost and I know you've hurt and I know you're wondering where I am and I'm not going to explain to you ahead of time everything that I'm doing my children but if you'll just keep your hearts fixed on me, I'm going to elevate you and I'm going to do something throughout the entire empire that's going to show them that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob keeps his promises to his people. That's the same God to whom you belong. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we sense your pleasure. I hope you sense ours. Oh, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for everything that you've done. So much of it we've forgotten about. By faith, we thank you for the things we've forgotten about. And Lord, we thank you also by faith for the things that you have stored up for those that love your son. Keep us faithful. Keep us fixated on the one who's seated upon the throne. Lord, let us endure unto the end with joy, peace, faith, and expectation. Lord, loose us to worship you with hearts that are unchained and unashamed. And Lord, let the glory of your King, the Son, shine through our lives as we advance his kingdom in our generation. In Jesus' awesome name, amen, amen, and amen.